Hello, Jimmy. Hello. That, that Thanks for greeting me. That's very polite of you. How was your strange loop? Uh, it was pretty good, uh, except for there was some weirdo who wanted to hang out with me. Um, didn't really enjoy that. Do you mean me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we got to meet in person for the first time, yes, which was which was yes. great. You know, it was it was a wild experience with Strange Loop. Just like uh, we had a a dinner for Future of Coding, and so many people came out. I feel so bad that not everyone got their food because the restaurant uh, struggled a little bit with the Strange Loop traffic. Uh, Ivan being one of those people who did not get his food. Yeah, but that's that's the price you pay for getting to see so many people in person. I have food at home. <laughs> but at Strange Loop, I have people. Yes, you don't get it at conferences. They've gotten rid of food. No, yes. I think my highlight of Strange Loop was at every social occasion possible, going up to any random person and saying, hey, do you want to come outside and record something for a sec? Also, you can't tell that guy, Jimmy. You can't tell him what we're doing. <laughs> yes. You have to come outside and say Dykstra like it's a swear word, but don't tell him. That was very fun. I, I got to do that for a couple of days and <laughs> got probably like 40 people or something like that, all told. So I had no idea what was going on, just that I wasn't allowed to know what was going on. And it took me a while to even know that I was not allowed to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did uh, follow Ivan out once or twice, but sadly never caught the Dykstra conversations. I mean, it's good. You know, I, I think people might not realize that, like, I get to hear the shenanigans on the episode for the first time when they get to hear them, right? Like, Ivan just is like, We must stop using textual programming languages. No syntax. No grammar. No parser. No compile time. Only live visual programming environments. I'm like, well, all right. <laughs> what happened to the conversation we had? Uh, I never <laughs> yeah. know, right? Uh, like, like intercal. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea either. Yeah, there were just like little bits and parts that I had, you know, a part in, and that was about it. But most episodes, I'm like, I is this going to be a new song about my dog in here, or is there going to be just uh, you know, us having a chat? Yes, I, I have previously described it as you you hear the episode the way the canvas hears the paintbrush. That 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 intercal one that's a, that was actually fun because your experience and and um, <clears throat> well, there was nobody else on that episode. But if there was somebody else on that episode, their experience was very different in that we structured it kind of like a game, like it was sort of like a little bit of a scripted like here are some rules and we're all going to try and follow them at times. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so there's a there's a version of that episode that is is very different from the one that went out on the feed that it, that was also interesting, and I think that idea of like, hey, what can we do in the recording, being totally divorced from hey, what can we do when the episode comes out, that separation is really interesting to me. Not just in a like, oh, I'm gonna go and do a bunch of weird things and haha, you had no idea, surprise, but also like, what structure can we have in the recording process? that makes it fun and energizing for us in a way that might not be, the, the audience may not be directly conscious of that, but they might get like an interesting feeling result out of it. I, I just, I like thinking of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's the same sort of thing that I've thought about for like the conference, right? So when you're at a conference and you're just an attendee, you have one experience. And then when you're a speaker, 
you're like, I guess like when I was an attendee, I thought, oh, the speakers must have like, you know, sometimes there's a lounge or whatever. I was like, it must feel so different being a speaker. And the answer is it does. You're just nervous the whole time and don't get to enjoy the conference until after your talk is done. Uh, but I, I do think it would be interesting. Like, how can you make it so that, you know, there's a difference in experience here between speakers and not. And then for, you know, most of these recordings, the experience is not that different from the episode. But Intercal was definitely one of those where it was more like auditioning for a play uh, <laughs> than it was recording a normal podcast episode. It was like, all right, director Ivan over here is going to give you some lines and tell you to read them. Yeah, like I had a, I had a, not a script, but like a, here's a sequence of activities that we're going to play together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I took Jimmy and nobody else through those activities. And then, uh, yeah. <sighs> well, good episode. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I'm out. I'll see you later. That was a great, another fine episode of the Future of Coding podcast. Another very normal episode. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, it's time for Jimmy's Philosophy Corner. It's time for Jimmy's Philosophy Corner. Yeah, as you uh, might be able to tell from this awkwardness here, uh, Ivan, Ivan wasn't as big of a fan of this paper. I don't know if that's the right word. He was uh, hesitant before we read it to, to do this paper. That would maybe be more accurate. Okay, so opening thoughts. This is pretty cool. Like this, you know, props as types, that idea and, and Wadler's paper. And, and I also watched uh, Wadler's Strange Loop talk just for additionally trying to drill this into some part of my brain that would be willing to receive it. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's very cool and I think I get it and I think I care, but it is very, <laughs> it, it's hard for me. This is not my, this is not my strong suit. This is not my area. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, this, this, it's another great Jimmy episode. We have some Ivan episodes. This one's going to be a great Jimmy episode. It's going to be a lot of Jimmy this time. And I'm just going to be here like, uh, yeah, uh, Girdle's pretty cool. Um, Cleanie's pretty cool. I don't know. So what about you, Jimmy? How, how does this paper strike you? So I remember when I read this paper for the first time, um, I had just met my now wife. I was driving up on the weekends always because I lived about two hours away. So I would drive up on the weekends and we were hanging out and she had fallen asleep um, after a long day and I was just up because I don't sleep super early. She did. I just started reading this paper on my uh, this big format e-reader that I had and this paper just struck me. The, to me, like, I, I, I am not... You know, I have some, I've done some self-study in philosophy. I have no formal background. I'm not a big, like, formal logic kind of person, to be completely honest with you. But I loved the way this paper connected so much of kind of the history of how all of this programming came to be, and then this kind of larger element, this kind of bigger vision of what programming ought to look like, what what good programming is, that's kind of maybe a little bit implicit in uh, the paper, but definitely in the talk that Philip Wadler gave, which I also saw in person uh, not that long after or whatever uh, at Strange Loop. Um, I don't know. This paper really has always stuck with me. I think it's a very well-written paper. It's very clear, despite being a very 
intense subject in some ways, a very formal subject. I think of all the papers that are kind of in the technical weeds in some sense, this is probably one of the few that I feel felt like we could actually do a podcast on. You know, there's almost nothing else in this uh, tradition of really caring about types in a deep sense that we could do as a podcast and do any service to it. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's so many of them are about, all right, let's go through this theorem and prove that thing. And like, okay, let me introduce this notation. And and it's, you know, trying to be, whereas this paper is not discovering anything new. Its contribution is not like I am giving something new that hasn't been said before. Its contribution is re-explaining things that have already been out there in a way that makes it more accessible for more people. And on that note, so you read the paper first and then watched the talk, right? Yes. The talk didn't exist when I read the paper. (laughs) And I watched the talk first and then still haven't read the paper. (laughs) (laughs) You just watched the movie, didn't read the book. Is that is that really who you were who you are and who you were, Ivan, watching the movie instead of reading the book? Um, uh, yeah, except I don't usually watch the movie either. Um, <laughs> I'll just like watch the trailer and then go, well, yeah, I don't know, that's not for me. But, but in all seriousness though, so watching the talk first and, and reading the paper and watching the talk again, um, I feel like, and maybe you'll disagree with this, but I feel like they are covering the same material in basically the same way mm-hmm. aside from the differences in medium mm-hmm. and i find the talk much more approachable than the paper I, I think that's true and so if you're if you're somebody who hasn't already read this paper and maybe isn't super game to go and absorb a whole bunch of formal logic notation and follow induction rules or whatever the all these philosophy corner people do I would recommend watching the talk because the talk, it has some spots where for me as a, as a non-logician, it, it's a little bit tough. But if you realize like, oh, when it's showing like, you know, this big sort of slide full of notation and some of it's red and some of it's blue, what it's doing is saying, look, this stuff on the blue side and this stuff on the red side are the same, not hey, these both exist at the same time. It's just like, let me overlap these two images. It's like, there's some, there's some like graphic design work that I think could have made the slides and the talk a lot clearer and more helpful. Mm-hmm. But in general, just like listening to Wadler talk about this stuff, like he's such a charming, like absolutely cheerful, like warm person who, um, <laughs> who says some things that I very, very emphatically disagree with to the core <laughs> of my being, but he says them in such a way where I'm like, ah, yeah, okay. So I would, I, I would be a huge, um, I, I would advocate for if, if this has any interest to you at all, but not very much interest, watch the talk, uh, the strange loop 2015 talk called propositions as types. If you are the kind of person who's like, no, you know what? I like my category theory. I, I like my Haskell. I am already in that camp. You've probably already read this paper. So 
I don't think you have to be in that camp to read the paper. So I, I view reading the, a paper versus watching the talk by the author. In this case, like Philip Wadler's talk is the paper in talk format, right? Like it, it is very direct. I mean, same jokes appear in both. Yes. That's the level of which we're translating here. Um, I feel it like I feel audiobooks versus reading. Hmm. Okay. Right? Like to, So like I have nothing against audiobooks, but... And I, I do listen to audiobooks on occasion. And there are certain books that I would rather listen to than sit and read. Uh, but the way in which, for at least for me personally, when I consume an audiobook, I don't get the time to like sit and contemplate, right? Like the flow continues. There's never a point where I get to go, did I understand that? Let me go back. Let me think. Let me contemplate. Mm. And so if you're just trying to get an overview of what this is about, I would agree. Like the talk is, it's a really good talk. It's a very, it makes it easier to understand. But I do think that there's a certain sense in which like taking the time to sit and read and stopping when you don't understand and think about it really can make your understanding deeper. That, that would be why I would say like, if you think that there's something really interesting here, sit with the paper and read it. Like, I, I think that you'll get more... Now, this is, again, this is just me being nerdy and weird, right? Like, but I there's a different experience to sitting and reading versus listening. Definitely. I'm going to take the exact opposite position and say that when you are watching the talk, you can, of course, pause and rewind at any time. And I do, because I, I struggle with this stuff. And so I do... Oh sit with things and I do go back and I do rewatch some parts several times. But I also get out of it Wadler's inflection and his body language and the like the smirk on his face or the way he tilts his head back and lifts his chin up when he says, and you can tell, can't you? <laughs> like all of these things that he does mm -hmm. to me bring a depth that is not there as much in this writing. Because while Wadler is a good writer, he is writing a paper that is meant to go into a journal. Is this ACM? Where is this going into? It's going into submitted for publication. It doesn't say publication where. But this is like a paper that is meant to conform to the expectations of a certain publishing body. And I find that that practice of publishing really bleeds out a lot of expression that you do get when you see somebody actually deliver the thing on a stage with lighting as a, as a, as a minor work of theater. I never have, and this might be the difference, like for me, when I watch a talk, I almost always don't actually watch the talk hmm. unless I'm in person, right? So like if it's a YouTube video or whatever, it's a talk... Either I have it on my phone and I'm listening to it in the background, just listening to the talk, or if I tried to pull it up on the computer, I get sufficiently distracted enough that I'm not going to just sit and watch the person. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's part of the difference, right? Like I end up almost always just defaulting it to it being audio. But I would, I mean, I think that this is something our audience, you know, they can figure this out for themselves. Th th but yeah, clearly they have a, at least they like some audio content or they wouldn't listen to our, you know, incredibly long podcast. Or maybe they only get through like the first 10 minutes. They're just here for the game reviews up front and then they leave. Oh, shit. We got to sneak one of those in. Uh, Cocoon is good, y'all. It's not like inside good, but it's good. 
play Cocoon. Mm, have not played. Yeah. It's one of the people who made uh, Limbo and Inside. Oh, I liked Limbo. I haven't played Inside. Oh my God, Jimmy. Inside is one of the best games I have ever played. Okay. I've been, I bought a Steam Deck and have been kind of getting back into games. The problem is I realized Hollow Knight works way better on the Steam Deck <laughs> than in the, on the Switch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm like way better at the game because there's way less input lag. And I never realized how much input lag there was on the Switch. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. But now I have to rebeat this game for the third time because uh, I'm good at it now. <laughs> I also did that uh, earlier this year, expecting that Silk Song was just around the corner. Yep, same. And I also did that like two years ago, expecting that Silk, Silk Song, Song was just, just around, around the corner. corner. Yep, yep. It's definitely just around the corner. Yeah, oh, and, definitely. And Unity yeah. doing their nonsense is definitely not going to have, have any, any impact on the impact gaming on industry. Or on their release of this yep. game that is, I think, built in Unity. Uh, yeah. It is. Um, Inside is like a three-hour game. And it is very much like turn off the lights and put on some big, uh, like sound. Sound is incredibly important for this okay. game. Like it is Good to know. of of any of the games I have played. I think this one does stuff sound wise more interestingly than like any other game I can name off the top of my head. So so have some good headphones. Play it in the dark. It's like three hours. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Okay. Cocoon, not as good. <laughs> not as good as one of the best games ever made, um, but all, still still, you know, a little bite-sized snack of, of some more of that kind of goodness. And the great thing about games is that they bring connections. <laughs> Deep connections between various bits together, just like Propositions as Types does. Uh-huh. <laughs> In fact, you might say that Powerful insights arise from linking two fields of study previously thought separate. I might think that. You're right. <laughs> yep. Uh, so we should we should get into this paper. We must. <laughs> yeah, we really should. All right. So All right. I, I read the first sentence, right? A, a, examples include Descartes' coordinates, which link geometry to algebra, Planck's quantum theory, which links particles to waves, and Shannon's information theory, which links thermodynamics to communication. Mm -hmm. Such a synthesis is offered by the principle of propositionist types, which links logic to computation. At first sight, it appears to be a simple coincidence, almost a pun, but it turns out to be remarkably robust, inspiring the design of automated proof assistants and programming languages, and continuing to influence the forefronts of computing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Come on. Like, okay, that is a <laughs> good starting good. paragraph. It is good. And, and it's like, and what it is doing, right? Like, we'll get into, you know, concretely what it does but just broadly like setting this up as like look we're gonna find there's a thing over here and a thing over there and they have this rich correspondence between them like i love doing that there's so much of that that you get to do in in programming and in the sciences and in math and this is just like look here's a bunch more and here's a, a cool recipe for finding even more of them, new ones that haven't been discovered yet. Or whether it's like, ah, we've got a thing over here and we can 
expect that there's going to be a thing over there, but we haven't found it yet. Or there might be two things that already exist and we don't know that they have a correspondence between them. So let's go find that. Like this is, this is fun stuff. This is very cool. Yeah. Um, that's it. That's oh, all. Oh, it seemed like There's but. It seemed like there no, was a but coming with no, this. Okay, uh, okay, okay. And that well, okay. but that's literally <laughs> like the whole paper. Uh, we've done it. We have uh, summarized <laughs> this great work. I've been Ivan Reese. Thank you very much for your time, and I'll see you next month when we don't know what we're doing next month either. Either, 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 or either, either is fine. Either's fine, or either's fine. Either or either's fine. Okay, so Jimmy. Bring us into this morass. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, yes, this paper starts off with the bang of what it's going to like kind of slowly get you to appreciate over the rest of the paper is that there is this deep correspondence. And he, he points out that there's kind of three correspondence here, this propositions as types. Okay. Then there's proofs as programs, and then there's simplification of proofs as evaluation of programs. So there's these three things that are a correspondence between logic and programming. Logic has propositions, proofs, and simplification of proofs. Programming has types, programs, and evaluation of programs. And already we are in trouble. <laughs> already yeah. we have, well, we have... Five of these, well, four, four or five of these six things are on Ivan's show list. So, <laughs> okay, well, the things I like uh -huh. are evaluation of programs. That's good because uh -huh. uh, we need to have our programs have an effect in the world. Programs now, there, I'm not so sure. Are they spatial? Do they exist? I don't know. A uh -huh. uh -huh. little bit iffy. Types get out, uh -huh. and then we have all this logic stuff. That's like it doesn't mean anything to anybody. So. Now we're in trouble. Okay, so ignoring that. So the as here, the interesting thing is like the, we're thinking of propositions as types. Really, you can think of it as they're the same thing. They're equal, right? When we say as, we're not thinking, oh, we can kind of think about these things as types. It's no, propositions are types, proofs are programs. Simplification of proofs is the evaluation of a program. That's the interesting bit here is this directly connected now ivan says that types aren't great um i know a lot of our listeners would very much disagree uh but i think even ivan doesn't really mean the statement he's saying because in order for us to really talk about types it here i think it's important that like yes in some ways the types we're talking about in this paper are the static types of programming languages but in other ways they're not yeah, I kid, and they're definitely a different thing. Yeah, in all seriousness, like the there are some programming languages, of course, like Haskell, that's really influenced by this tradition. And even you know, Wadler was involved in getting generics into Java. He helped implement all of that. And there's you know some direct connections here. But the there are a few papers that trace like the history of types in programming languages and show how they're complicated. And we might do those at some point. In this specific context, I think what is meant by types is types as as you would find in the simply typed lambda calculus. Yes. Not types as in like, you know, the syntax of declaring a type for an argument to a function or something like that in a particular programming language. Like there's the, the fundamental concept of types from a very pure, like logic perspective versus 
the actual interface that you encounter when you do real programming. And I do have a substantial critique, not just a jokey, jokey critique Mm -hmm. along these lines, but I will save that for later. Okay. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to kind of dive in to part of what this paper touches on that I think will be really interesting is looking at like, why did these types arrive in, yeah. in mathematics and in logic, right? And like, what do they actually do for us? And we'll get to there. I don't want to jump ahead to that yet. But I think, you know, I will put out there just for people who might not know, propositions. Yeah. I think that's a term that oftentimes is a little, you know, maybe thrown around, but it's really just statements in logic, right? So it's something that makes a claim. So the cat is on the mat is a uh, classic example that's given in philosophy of a proposition, right? So it's a declarative statement. And then, of course, proofs are just proving something. And then simplification of proofs, it's taking big, complicated proofs and making them into the smallest possible form. And I think already, if you start thinking about this fact that when we are writing a program, according to this, we're making a claim right? There is some proposition going on here, like in our types, and then there's these proofs. So our whole program is a proof of something. And then when we run our program, we run that proof, we simplify that proof, and we get out an answer. I think that is a really weird and counterintuitive way to think about programming. And this is what, when I first read this paper, struck me so much. Maybe, you know, this was I mean, almost a decade ago at this point. It was something I had never encountered before. And I think encountering it for the first time, this doesn't just apply to proof assistance. You know, I had heard about these like mechanical things or whatever, but this is any program you have written. It corresponds to some proof or other. I I find what helped me and may help you, listener, wrap your head around this correspondence is thinking of, not just evaluation of any program, not just, you know, writing code in any programming language, but specifically something Lisp-like, when the code that you write is some sort of structure of self-similar things that's, like, nested, not like a series of statements to perform one after the other, like a, you know, imperative kind of thing, but a more nested thing where... Uh, you have referential transparency. So at any point in that nested, you know, built up structure, you can take some bit of code and replace that little bit of code with whatever it would evaluate to. So if you have some function call, you just like run that function with whatever arguments and it comes back with whatever result that it has. And if you put that result there in place of that function call, you have simplified the program a little bit by evaluating that little sub part of it. And the ultimate result of your whole program is when you do that all the way down, when you like evaluate all of the code and replace all of the function calls with whatever they return and collapse that big structure of code down to a single value at the end, assuming, you know, you're, you're writing in a Lisp that, that works in that style because there's, you know, different flavors of Lisp. But to me, visualizing it that way really helped me see the relationship where it's like, oh, yeah, when looked at in that light, evaluation of this program is like taking this large structure and gradually reducing it down and reducing it down until you're left with the the simplest structure that results. Yeah, I do think that's a very intuitive way of looking at it. One of the things I want to, I think we have to emphasize up front, though, is this isn't 
This isn't just a simplistic idea here, right? When when you first mention this to people, like there's a direct connection between logic and programming. One thing people might think is, well, yeah, duh. Yeah. Like, of course, like we do Boolean logic. We do all of this all the time. Like, yes. of course it's logical. We use logic in our programs, uh-huh. but that's not it. Yes. That's not what's being said here. And it's not that there's just logic, right? I think one of the other things people don't realize is how many different forms of logic there are here. So we get a list that's propositional, predicate, second order, intuitionistic, classical, modal, and linear. There's uh, temporal. There's all sorts of different kinds of logic. And for every single one of these, there is some way of taking that form of logic and translating it into something computational. I think of uh, Chris Martin's work um, where they take linear logic and create stories or analyze games, things like that, right? Where there's this, there is this very deep connection between these logic and these computational elements. This is what this paper starts with is that this, this notion is deep. It has a breadth. It is, a much deeper connection than you might think. And then the question becomes, why? Why is this even the case? And we're not going to answer the question yet, but why would it be that there is this connection between all of these things? What makes it so that logic on one hand and programming on the other are somehow so intricately related? So intricately related as to be the same thing just manifested in different ways, but that to their core, they share an identity. Yes, absolutely. And so we get kind of some history. We get, I mean, we get like most of this paper, I think is pulling in a bunch of different historical things. It actually is a little hard to think about like what's the right way to go through this paper. Cause so many of the papers we read are kind of structured as arguments. Yeah. Whereas this is just a lot of facts. This is a lot of, things that happened. So, you know, we first discovered this kind of stuff with a number of different people. Like, there's all these names being dropped in this paper of, like, here's kind of the history. So we get Gensen, we get Church, we get Turing, we get Henley, Milner, Curry, Howard. But it all kind of starts with the first name, actually, here is Aristotle. The origins of logic lie with Aristotle and the Stoics and classical Greeks, Occam and the Scholastics in the Middle Ages, and Leibniz's vision of the calculus, radiosinator. I did not plan on how to say that <laughs> yeah. word. Radiosinator? I got, I've got one of those in my sink. Ratiocinator? Yeah, yeah, ratiocinator. Uh, <laughs> at the dawn of the Enlightenment. I should have planned on how to say that. Um, yeah, and then we get Bull and De Morgan and Frigga and... I'll let, I'll let you pronounce the next name because I know... Pierce and Piano. Nope, it's Purse. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no. I got you. I tricked you. And is it Pano? Is it Piano? Is it Pano? Piano, I think is right. The one who has the arithmetic. Yeah, but it is, it is famously Purse. Oh. And everyone mispronounces it because it looks like Pierce and it should be Pierce, but it's Purse. Great. So I just tricked you. Great. Cool. He's an American pragmatist. Oh, so I should know better. <laughs> uh-huh. He's the founder of 
American pragmatism. Ah, really. well, I'll genuflect in his direction as you throw me under this oncoming bus. <laughs> and then um, we also get... At the dawn of the 20th century, North and Whitehead... <laughs> Wrote <laughs> Principia Mathematica. Principia Mathematica. Famously North and Whitehead. Yes, North and Whitehead. Uh, and they, they showed this this idea that like we really have a way of possibly grounding mathematics in logic. And we'll find out later that that doesn't work. But at the time... This was uh, a real big accomplishment. I mean, the Prin- Principia Mathematica is this m- huge book. It's a masterwork. It, it goes through all sorts of things, kind of grounding arithmetic and sets and doing all sorts of stuff that hadn't been done before. And this inspired Hilbert. And this is really where the start of computing happens, is Hilbert's program. He didn't write a program. He, he <laughs> made a program, which was... It's, it's kind of confusing in this context. Yeah, like research program. In yeah, this yeah. Case. Like, His project. <laughs> yes, yes. Hilbert's Hilbert project. wrote the verse. Pro- no, he definitely did yeah. not. Uh, Ada Lovelace did. But yeah. Hilbert's um, Open Collective. <laughs> <laughs> Support us on Hilbert's Patreon. Hilbert um, launched a podcast in which he. Uh, yes. He, he, did, he wanted to solve the, what it was called the decision problem, which in German is Engel Bartson Dung problem. <laughs> Einschuldungs problem, problem, problem. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, uh, So to develop an effectively calculable procedure to determine the truth or falsity of any statement. So the idea here is, can we solve all of mathematics? Given some mathematical statement, can we have some mechanistic way of knowing whether the statement is true or false? Now, I I have a question for you, historian Jimmy. So I know that what the goal of Principia Mathematica was to frame mathematics like or to reconstruct all of mathematics so that it would be built out of a single sort of seed element that at the very bottom of mathematics was set theory and if you could get set theory then you could get all the rest of mathematics out of that. Yeah. And if memory serves like they made Principia Mathematica, but I'm, I, my recollection is that they weren't satisfied with it for some reason, or maybe they were, and it was later they discovered, oh, it is actually not correct. Uh, I'm, I'm spoiling a little bit for anybody who doesn't know the story that ultimately it's like, oh yeah, Principia did not actually do that. It did not succeed. And Yes, so one of the things that came out of Principia is that naive set theory. Uh, didn't work, right? So the the idea of naive set theory is like, oh, really, this is supposed to come from some intuitive idea that like, if there's a collection of objects, we could can collect together that collection, call that a set, right? So one of the things Russell was actually trying to do is ground mathematics and logic and these like very logically intuitive principles, but also ground mathematics in the physical world. That was also part of Russell's uh, plan here. So when we talk about sets of objects, like he wanted to say, what are numbers? Well, we could, there's these like fancy ways of doing numbers uh, with like iterative sets, but that's not really what Russell looked at. It was like, what is the set? What is the number two? Well, it's the set of all pairs, right? So if you pair up every object in the world and you put each of those pairs into a set, that set of all pairs is the number two. Hmm, biblical. 
So one of the things that happened, though, as part of this is that Russell's paradox was one of the things he discovered is that naive set theory doesn't work because of Russell's paradox, which is, you know, probably something people have heard of before. Um, But it's the set of all sets that do not contain themselves is one way of putting it. Or there's a barber who shaves all and only the men who don't shave themselves. Mm, Yeah. 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 Principia kind of left a bunch of things undetermined. And we'll get to Russell's solution for that in just a second. And so Hilbert comes along and and is like, hey, can I build some kind of algorithm, some kind of process to take any statement in logic, or I guess by extension in math, and determine whether that statement is true or false. And this is something that maybe ideally would have been settled by Principia Mathematica, but hasn't been and is sort of like the, the, the... root of this question, can you find some way to calculate the the truth or falsity of a statement, is also at the root of what is incomplete about Principia Mathematica. Yeah, yeah. It it laid a bunch of foundations, but there were still a lot of questions left unasked. And, you know, in 20th century fashion, there was kind of this arrogance that we now can solve all of mathematics once and for all, right? We will not only set mathematics on its firm foundation, but we will solve all the problems. And then who comes <laughs> along but... Uh, Kurt Gödel uh, showed uh, that at the very same conference, uh, the day before Hilbert made this proclamation, that uh, you actually can't do that. So we call them the incompleteness theorems, right? You'll hear of Gödel's incompleteness. But what he really showed was that you either have one of two choices. You can make a system that is complete and that it can express all of the things you want to express, but it's inconsistent. It's going to have some inconsistency there. Or you can make something that is completely consistent, but incomplete. There's things that you want to express with it that you can't. Just to get in a plug while we're here, my favorite book that has explored this space is not Gödel Escherbach. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is a book called Infinity and the Mind by Rudy Rucker. This book uh, covers like Busy Beaver and a whole bunch of other just delightful examples. And so it's uh, that is a an easy plug for me to make. The whole thing is online. You can go read the whole thing in a web browser if you want. But uh, I recommend getting a little like uh, paperback and going and sitting by a river. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got Girdle. Girdle comes along and goes, boom, you wanted this Principia Mathematica that explained all of math in terms of, you know, the set theory. No, you don't get that. Also, you don't get any other formulation. You cannot explain all of mathematics built out of any single seed. They are always going to either be incomplete or inconsistent. Now what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as part of this program, though, so like one of the interesting things here is like Gödel's Gödel's explanation wasn't fully appreciated, wasn't fully accepted right away. There was still a lot of work here. Hilbert clearly wasn't aware of it when it first happened, but it also didn't like have these vast implications. In fact, today it's kind of ignored in a lot of ways. Set theory still is the underlying foundation of mathematics, even though we know it's incomplete. So that's that's interesting. But it also, Hilbert's project, despite being actually impossible, spun out a bunch of people to try to search for 
this decision problem. And of course, they weren't able, of course, to actually make the decision problem. But what they were able to do is figure out a nice way of showing that it's impossible, of showing that once and for all, there is no way to make this decision problem happen. So you might think, okay, so why would that even matter for if Gödel has already shown mathematics is incomplete? Well, it might be the case that, you know, our system has these problems or there's some way around it or Gödel's proof wasn't quite right. A lot of people it was it's a fairly complicated setup. And so even if Gödel might have shown some of this, you still have this problem of what exactly would a decision problem algorithm look like if we could do it? What would be the elements involved? And maybe we can't do it for all things, but maybe the things we can do it for are useful enough. And so we get that uh, there were three independent definitions by three different logicians. And I'll spoil the joke that's in both the paper and the talk. Like buses, you wait 2,000 years for a definition of effectively calculable, and then three come along all at once. <laughs> so the the three were Lambda Calculus, published in 1936 by Alonzo Church, Recursive Functions, proposed by Gödel at lectures in Princeton in 1934 and published in 1936 by Stephen Cleaney, and Turing Machines, published in 1937 by Alan Turing. And go ahead. No, I mean it's like <laughs> I, I have already finished the podcast. I'm off, like, eating lunch at this point. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's rather late for you to be eating lunch. Usually that would have been acceptable, but... Podcast days throw my schedule to hell. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, uh, all right. So, is hell one of the words I should be censoring? No. I have this debate. It's like, which one of the words deserves the, like, f*** you, censor? Like, which, which, which words are deserving of that. Hest. Etc. Um, <laughs> and which ones just can slip the hell on by and it's no big deal? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's definitely not a word that needs to be censored. I think you can go on, you know, television standards, right? Yeah. I don't know if those are different in Canada, though. I don't, so in, in America, what are the words that are censored on television? You're just trying to get me to say words. <laughs> I mean, Cause I've only had, I've only had one. It's a podcast. You can say a lot of words. It's okay. Oh uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. But I just, I, I like the idea that I've only had to be censored once. Now Ivan could of course just randomly choose to censor me. Um, but I like the idea that I, I've made this very conscious choice Probably not forever, but like the next time I get censored, it will be because I decided it was worth it. Yeah. Not because Ivan goaded me into saying so. <laughs> so. So. Church and Turing, right? I think this is a classic tale. Everyone knows the love story of Church and Turing. <laughs> <laughs> the tale is old as time. <laughs> this, is a, this is fairly rehearsed. I mean, if you haven't heard about kind of Church and Turing and the, the difference here, I don't think we're going to go into all of the details here. Needless to say, Church came up with the Lambda calculus. Turing came up with Turing machines. And these are very, very different ways of talking about what is effectively calculable. To put that in English, they're very different ways of modeling computation, right? Like we're all programmers listening to this. 
if you're not a programmer, you're not listening to this. <laughs> it's like there. Um, that statement or is... Or you're like a family member or friend of... No, of, you took my complete consistent statement and, and <laughs> introduced doubt. Uh-huh. Um, I can't believe you, you girdled me into that. Um, um, so it's like lambda calculus is is the the approach to computation that underlies a lot of beloved functional languages like most lisps and haskell and the ml family and all that mm -hmm. and then turing machines is the model of computation that underlies what like pretty much nothing at this point uh, i mean uh, you could think of it as kind of like the machine way of looking at at computing well it's one of the machines yeah i mean of course that it, the simplified approach was not but yeah. the the dis distinction here i'd want to draw is like you can talk lambda calculus is like all oh, right uh denotational semantics like what does this mean by defining it in terms of math yeah whereas like yeah. turing machines kind of operational semantics what does it do yeah i can i can understand what this is by thinking of a machine and it working and what it does mm -hmm. so like state machines are kind of in that tradition of like you know turing more than lambda calculus and and this is like these are loose connections here. Yeah, these but. are loose connections. Lou drew these connections. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but right. I think one of the things that is remarkable is just like how incredibly different these two things are, and yet they're fundamentally the same. Yes. And we get the reason that these came. They were both discovered to use a word that I shouldn't use till later. And you can tell. Or invented one of the two <laughs> at the same time. Spoilers. <laughs> yes. At the same time is like what we're trying to do is figure out a way that we can compute all of these proofs. So one thing you could do, you could imagine a way of solving the decision problem is someone feeds you a statement and you just say whether it's true or not. But another way is just to list all the true statements. And this is something that you can kind of, I think, more intuitively think about for a Turing machine is the Turing machine might have been able to generate all of the true statements. And it turns out that there's a statement it can't actually prove. There's something about Turing machines that make them undecidable. And this is the halting problem. This is Gödel's incompleteness theorem, but in a physical machine. That's what's so fascinating to me about Turing's way of doing it. And the halting problem is... A question of, well, if I give a Turing machine some arbitrary program, can it determine whether it halts or not? Of course, there are some programs that will be able to figure out, yes, that halts. Some people hear this and are like, of course I can figure out if a program halts. Yeah, of course. There's some programs, it's very easy to figure out, do they halt or not? Some programs you can say yes, some programs you can say no, but can you do this for every program? Can you always know? And the answer is no. One example, I guess, of a Turing machine program that you can't know is uh, where you feed the program to itself. It, let's assume we have this halting detector. One of the things we can do is we can write a program that takes that halting detector and we just run it in our program. We figure out if it thinks it's going to terminate or not, and then we do the opposite. And so we kind of got this self-referential problem here. And so... In the same way that Turing machines have this halting problem, so does lambda calculus. What I like is that the way that we broke the Turing machine is by introducing recursion. And that's also how we break set theory. Mm -hmm. Is that 
when you want to break set theory, you just have to introduce the idea that sets can contain themselves mm-hmm. or sets can contain like descriptions of themselves, um, depending on like, you know, what, what mechanisms you want to bring in. But it's this like self-reference is frequently the thing that introduces inconsistency into what would otherwise be a complete system. So if you have some, right, the incompleteness theorem, you can't have both complete and consistent. So you can make a really big complete system, but to be complete, it needs to include self-reference. And that is the thing that introduces the inconsistency in many cases. And if you take away the self-reference, then you can have a big encompassing consistent system, but it's incomplete because it doesn't have self-reference. Yeah, and it's the same exact thing with lambda calculus, right? The way in which you can see the halting problem, I think the halting problem in Turing machines is so much cooler than the halting Mm -hmm. problem in lambda calculus because it's a machine and it feels like, oh, we should be able to say anything about a machine in the physical world, right? Like that just feels wrong that we can't. Whereas what happens in lambda calculus is if you have the untyped lambda calculus, you can take a function and apply it to itself, that's the idea. And if you do this, I think the most fun one is you do it twice, and you start getting this just growing, gigantic lambda term. Because each time you apply the function, it's applying, it's returning itself twice, and then it's returning, and you get this big, huge, growing term that will never end. Yeah. So it will never halt. And so if you think about this again in this propositions as type things, this is saying as we try to simplify our proof, our proof is getting larger and larger and larger and larger forever. Mm-hmm. And so there is no simplifying of it, but we know it's not in simplest terms because we still need to apply these operations. And so... This podcast is um, complete, but it is inconsistent because I'm going to reference this podcast. Um, <laughs> earlier when I recommended the book Infinity in the Mind by the Rudy Rucker, um, I meant to reference it here because it's this kind of stuff about like, ooh, what are the tasty different kinds of, you know, oh, if you're doing a lambda calculus simplica- simplication. Simplications. <laughs> and you, uh, and you, you know, just return the, the same program, but two of them, each time you, you know, try to simplify it, it actually returns two of itself and it grows and grows and grows without bound. Like, this is a book full of those kind of fun things that you can do to break these constructs. So um, I just thought I'd I'd reference that, self-reference that. You were saying... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's also To Mock a Mockingbird, is that it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, which is like a kind of a series of puzzles or kind of teaching you logic through some puzzles uh, here. I I think it's a pretty good book. I haven't, like, sat and read it all the way through, but I enjoy looking at To Mock a Mockingbird. I haven't read it, but a lot of smart people say it's a good book, so... (laughs) (laughs) When some smart person says it's a good book, I can go, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of smart people I know say it's a good book. So, the thing is, this is actually... So, this halting problem seems completely intractable, but we actually know how to solve it. Mm -hmm. We know how to solve it by just adding types. What? <laughs> okay. So, it, so yes, we still get this problem where it's incomplete or not, right? But all well-typed programs in the simply-typed lamb calculus will halt. Hmm. Because you don't have recursive types because it's not... What? <laughs> yeah, because the the typing rules make it so it is a type error to apply a function to itself. 
And so these type rules don't, in some ad hoc way, say you can't do recursion. It's as soon as you add the types, that stuff you were doing to do recursion just doesn't type check. And that's, I think, really fascinating because if we go back to Principia Mathematica, uh, Principia, Principia, I'm going to say it both ways so that I'm right one of the times. Incipient Mathematica, North and Whitehead's Incipient Mathematica. Uh-huh, yes. Um, and so if you, uh, if you go back to that, this is exactly how Russell solved his paradox. He invented or discovered, one of the two, the idea of types. And you can tell. <laughs> he put this idea of types onto sets. And he said that sets have a certain type, and there's kind of this hierarchy and these rules around how you're able to have sets inside of each other or not. Now, this was not the solution the mathematics community ended up actually going with. If you go look at like ZFC and the way that math, like set theory is defined now, it's not a theory of types, but this was Russell's idea. And so the exact same idea is applied now to Lambda calculus. Now I have no idea. Is there a Turing machine um, types? Like a typed Turing machine? Yeah. All right. Well, have you heard of such a thing? No, but I'm like, you know, arms reach away from Google uh-huh. typed Turing machine. Also, we need to figure out when we're going to um, start the second part, the second segment, because we're an hour in. I don't want a three-hour podcast. <laughs> 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 so when do we reboot and switch to the second segment? Did you know? Did you have like an, an advance planned out? Like, ah, here's first segment, here's second segment. Like where in the paper we split it up? My plan was to go, was like right around here. Oh, okay, cool. So I'll let you bring us to that transition. Um, simply typed Turing machine. Um, I mean, no. <laughs> All right, so somebody... <laughs> Somebody in the community go out and do a simply type Turing machine. Yeah, how do you change a Turing machine so that it just like has types, so that it has rules, so that the whole thing problem is trivial? There's got to be a way. I guess push down automata um, might be the answer. Um, Something like that. I'm going to take the under on that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say push down automata plus one cent. Because they're not Turing complete, right? It's been a while. No, they are not. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Like, is that the most powerful before you get to Turing machines that's not Turing complete? I'm sure it's not the most powerful in the hierarchy, but I think it's, it's like, of the popular ones, of the, like, mm. you know, uh, the different finite automata and, and regexes and all that kind of stuff in that stack. Yeah. Yeah, they're near the top. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's something in there. Um, so, yeah, people, please tell me, because I'm interested. Yep. Um, so I, I feel like at this point, you know... We just have to take a break because I can see Ivan just like glazing over. Like usually at this point in episodes, Ivan's like all energized and about to go on his uh, by, I mean, every podcast rant of visual programming. Don't you have to go let out your dog? <laughs> Isn't that usually the thing that happens at around this time? <laughs> like that actually the thing that happens at it, around this time? It's actually really funny because, uh, so we're recording this on a different day than what we usually do at a different time. And so Janice is home taking care of Lemon. <laughs> and so there is no natural break point. And so we just have to make a break awkwardly. <laughs> I don't <laughs> you don't have to include I don't that like if this. you want I, I do not like this <laughs> no it's perfect yeah it's so forced it gives up the bit 
prematurely. People will know that we're doing a bit as opposed to what normally happens. Where people don't know that having Dykstra being yelled out is a bit. No, 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 no. I'm not joking here. I'm actually being serious. But I'm usually not in on the bits. That's why it's different. No, well, no. mm, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's true. You're rarely not in on the bits. I don't know of any bit I've been in on. Other than Intercal? I wasn't in on that. I had no idea what was happening. I had no idea either. Oh, but I mean, you knew that there was a bit happening. The only bit I knew was that it was weird. That's what I mean. But I haven't been in on the bit. Right, but I'm not in on the bit at the time we record either. It's fine. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. That's what I'm saying. That's why this is different. It's because I'm in on the bit at the time that we're recording? Because this is a pre-planned bit that we're both in on. I guess. And that is ruining the purity for you. No, the, p- <laughs> the problem is I don't want the audience to be in on the bit. But they're not in on the bit. They are if we have to force a transition. If we start up the next segment and you're like, like if I play the like lemon stinger, if you're like, oh, hold on, I got to go let lemon out. And I I play the lemon stinger and then we start up again. Then the audience is not in on the bit yet. I mean, if you really, I think that that, I don't know. Well, what do you want the bit to be? You you designed this bit. This is your responsibility. I did not design the bit. It was your idea. No, it wasn't. Well, it totally was. The episode into chunks? That was you. No, this was a back and forth that, like, you had said you want to do something, and... And you said, okay, we'll it into chunks, because the paper's kind of cleanly and and we can just each time. I, I think it was back and forth. Speaking of back and forth... Hello, Ivan. Hello, Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, what's new since last time? (laughs) So I know this paper is not your cup of tea, but I was actually kind of surprised at how many people on our Patreon voted for types. How many contrarians out there knew that by picking the type tier, they would be intentionally undermining my visual programming hegemony? Yeah, I I don't know if that's true. In fact, visual programming's losing. No. Yeah, yeah. Is it actually now? It's last. If I go to patreon.com slash future of coding, (laughs) and I look at the three and only three membership tiers, three and only three, Type systems with 13 members, visual programming with 10 members, and end user programming with 13 members. This is a conspiracy. Uh huh. <laughs> this will not stand. Where are my visual programming cronies? Where are my flying monkeys? Where are my little nodes? Where are my, where are my little nodes? <laughs> where are all my little nodes out there? Uh. Come out with your wallets and, and show what the prevailing approach to programming ought to be over the next several centuries. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I figured end-user programming would be high up there, but uh, types, people are digging the types. And I think, you know, I, I think it makes sense. As much as I'm not a, uh, I'm not a type theory maximalist, you know, I'm not somebody who really thinks like everything ought to be typed and any untyped languages are bad or whatever, dynamically typed, however you want to call them. I think types are having their moment right now. Yeah. Types are really like, on the ascend. Yeah. There are so many people who care about types. And I think it's, I don't think it's an accident. 
Like, I don't think it's just purely a fad. I think types have gotten a lot better. It has happened to me. I have switched, and this this past yesterday, even, as we record, I, I was writing code in TypeScript, and I got a type error, and I couldn't figure, and I knew that the code was correctly typed, but I couldn't figure out how to hint to TypeScript, no, like, trust me, if these conditions are met, that type is definitely going to be narrowed to this thing, and you think it's not, and I couldn't figure out how to do that, so I just refactored my whole system so it was a lot more confusing, and then it satisfied the type checker. <laughs> I actually hopped on a call with uh, a friend who was insistent that uh, TypeScript was wrong about his type, and that we should go fix the add a feature or fix the bug and so we went and hacked on the typescript type checker and made his code type check nice. and then realized like why typescript was implemented that way i still hold it was a better way of implementing it anyways but like you know people like waddler who have all this theory behind it i'm sure would have a good reason why it shouldn't be but if you already have an unsound type system why not Uh, i I, there you go here's an idea for you right um so you need to make a uh musical programming language okay and then Uh, i need to like it's in my blood yeah yeah you need to uh i know that this is a desire a need that you have it's on your maslow's hierarchy you know the most important one uh and so you need to have it have a type a type system that's an unsound type system Mm mm-hmm because it doesn't make any sounds. <laughs> so I, I'm reading this book that I actually think you might like, and I, I think we got to find some stuff off of. This is completely irrelevant, but I don't care. Uh, so it's called Games Art as Agen- Agency as Art. I think it's Agency as Art. Games yeah. Art as Games Agency. <laughs> Games agency as art. It's a philosophy. Games. It's a philosophy colon book. agency as art. Yes. Games colon, colon agency, agency as, as art as art. Ah, yes. It's a philosophy. It's a philosophy book about games. Colon agency <laughs> as art. <laughs> yes, I butchered it. I'm sorry. Uh, so it's a philosophy book about games and trying to defend them as a unique art form. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of the games it mentioned that just sounds so interesting to me is called Sign. Hmm. This is like a, not a video game. This is mm-hmm. like an actual game. It was created in the 70s. I'm pretty sure like this avant-garde game. Have you ever heard of this? Never. Okay. So the idea is every person, you see, you play this together physically. It's kind of a, I guess, a board game. I don't know what you call games that aren't a board game, that aren't a tabletop RPG. Yeah. Like, I, just a game. Yeah. Like, like, um chess right what do you call chess well, well chess is a board game oh yeah i guess so because you're it's boring um <laughs> that joke has never been made before uh-huh, <laughs> never so anyways uh every person is given a kind of inner secret they're supposed to i guess it's a role-playing game in some ways they're supposed to play this character and their character has this inner secret that they want to share with people like something about like a childhood trauma or something they deeply believe but when you play the game, you have to be completely silent. You cannot speak at all. And you have to now learn how to communicate hmm. your deep secret that you hmm. want to share with people. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole game. Nobody can talk. Nobody can write. And you have to communicate your secret with everybody. And I just think that sounds like such a fun game. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the the author has a house rule that I actually think is really interesting. I think I would only want to do it after I have already played the game once. But their house rule is after the game is over, you can't say what your inner secret was. Hmm. Hmm. So you leave the game hmm. having communicated it, but mm-hmm. never having the confirmation in English that that's really what happened. Mm-hmm. I just loved that idea. I don't know how it's it, it just the unsound and all of that, you know, popped into my head. But I think that sounds like such an interesting game. Yeah. So uh, I, I definitely want to get a group of people. You have to be in person. There's no way. It would be so impossible to do this over Zoom, right? But yeah. I really want to play that now. It sounds really fun. Yeah. Also a game about World War One, but you like are investors. This is actually a board game, but you're investors in the countries and you get to take over the countries by investing in them rather than attacking. So it's like risk, but you don't care about the countries. It's called Imperial, I think. That also sounds really fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Segway off that, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, so Speaking of so th- uh, things that happened in and around a world war... No, I mean, so as part of, you know, the stuff that had happened in World War One, and then we get to World War Two, a lot of this computing stuff became very relevant. So much of this was funded by the military. And so many of these people ended up at Princeton. In fact, Church and Turing were at Princeton, which did so much in this computational realm. See, perfect. Clear, yeah, yep. great segue. Um, yeah, so, okay. So now we've we've gone through some of this. We have Church. We have Turing. There's two different ways of doing effectively calculable. And in some ways, this is very relevant. In some ways, it's not. Uh, the reason we really got here was because we care about Church. We care about Lambda Calculus. And so this was kind of a history lesson of how Lambda Calculus came to be. And it was supposed to be this logic, and it ran into the same problem, that uh, we see with Gödel, with the incompleteness theorem, with halting problems. But then a bunch of other stuff's happening at the same time. There's in 1935. There's Gerhard Ginsen. Mm-hmm. And Ginsen comes is a logician. It has nothing to do with mathematics. Nothing to do with this decision problem. He just comes up with this really great way of writing down logical formula. And and his big thing here was having these kind of two parts, these introduction rules and another thing that I did not, elimination rules. That's the other one. I thought there were three things. Introduction, elimination, and one other thing, because you need the three parts, right? Uh, Universal quantification, implication, conjunction, disjunction. Ah, proof rules should come in pairs, a feature not present in earlier systems such as Hilbert's. Threeness of pairs. In natural deduction, these are introduction and elimination pairs. And so we get this really nice system that kind of formalized in a much better way and made much clearer what was going on with our logical systems. And this is important because this ends up bridging to our, our propositions as types idea. This system of Gensons is what allows Curry to notice in 1934 that there's this deep connection between implication and functions. And this is what's so wild to me. So we get 1934, Curry realizes this, and then in 1969, Howard 
circulates a Xeroxed manuscript that isn't published until 1980. Mm-hmm. And just so that people know, Curry and Howard, like we're throwing a lot of names around. These are our two new characters, Curry and Howard. We've got Curry, Howard, we've got Genson, we've got Church, we've got Turing. We, we have not been talking about Curry and Howard yet. They are new. They have just joined the story. Yes. And so what we ultimately get is that Howard publishes, well, doesn't publish this paper until Curry's death. There's a kind of a paper in 1980, you know, the German word that I'm not going to try to pronounce where you publish a bunch of papers after someone dies in honor of them. And he publishes this paper in 1980 and he shows that there's this deep correspondence between conjunction, meaning and, a and B is the Cartesian product. So you can think of this as just pairs, right? So A and B is like the tuple A comma B. Mm-hmm. So in logic, you have conjunction. And in uh, set theory, you have the Cartesian product. Yeah, or in programming, you have tuples. And then there's disjunction, A or B. And then this is the same as a disjoint sum, which you can also think of as like, algebraic data types, enums, where you can say, oh, I have, you know, event A, event B, or I have an either, or I have a maybe, or any of these things, right? These are the same kind of structures. And then you have implication, uh, which is also functions. So A implies B is the same as a function from A that returns B. Give it an A, get a B. And he shows that these are in a correspondence. Yes, that the things that you have on the logical side in each of these conjunction, disjunction, implication correspond cleanly to Cartesian product, disjoint sum, and a function on the programming side. Yeah, and he continues on and and expands this even more to things that are maybe a little less common, like existential quantifiers and universal quantification, and this ends up becoming dependent types. So when I was first learning about this stuff. Hey, Jimmy's been talking about philosophy for a while. Here comes Ivan to ground it in reality again. Um, When I was first learning about this stuff, my hook into this, and I don't have, I I don't have a formal like, oh yeah, this exactly maps to that and this exactly maps to that like thing prepared. Like I'm not, I'm not a formalist, so I'm not going to have that. But the thing that I was reminded of, the thing that echoes here, if it's not a direct correspondence, is the Boolean operations that you take on geometric primitives. So the things like when you're working in you know, a drawing app or a 3D modeling app, you have these Boolean operations like union, subtraction, intersection. Those operations... Like, to the mathematicians in the room, what I'm about to say is very obvious, but to the artists, this might be a revelation. Those operations are like the geometric, like, in physical space, you can do this with, like, scissors and paper kind of version of set union, set intersection, or having, like, disjoint sets where it's like, you know, these two sets do not overlap. There's a clean mapping there between the geometric version of that and this set version or this logic version of those things. And that was a really helpful hook for me because it gave me something I could picture in my mind as a, oh, when we're talking about conjunction or the Cartesian product or something where it's like, oh yeah, we've made a thing that has both of these. Like that was very intangible for me and very hard to appreciate until I was like, oh, that's the same as the union operation you can take on two shapes. 
that's how I climbed on board this train when I was first learning about it. So I don't know if that's going to be helpful for anybody out there if you're like me and coming at this from an arts background and not a philosophy background. But uh, if you're out there, uh, hey, I see you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that this stuff can seem very, and it is, it's like very formal. It doesn't seem very applicable. But what this ends up getting us is that you can write programs that end up being proofs. And you can, if you take this view that your program is a proof, you end up getting really interesting systems. So if you look at like Idris, I think it's probably the most approachable of these kind of dependently typed languages out there. It's not the most approachable language in the world. Uh, technically, TypeScript has like half of dependent types at this point, uh, but they're not really displayed in such a way that you would think of them as dependent types. It's an underspecified buggy implementation of half of Idris. <laughs> Yeah, probably true. Uh, uh, so if you look at like how Idris does things, you can start writing these proofs in the type system. You can start saying, for example, that when you implement factorial, you can know that your implementation at compile time has to be correct. And there's some more fancy ways of doing it, but there's also some very simple ways where you can have a type, which is factorial 5 equals 120. That is your type, right? So I say X is type fact of 5 equals 120. And at compile time, if that is not true, <laughs> you will get an error, which is fascinating. If you start looking at all of the different things you can do with Idris, all these different proofs you can write, you can start to see how you can have a meta-language to talk about your programs. So many times we think about types as just arbitrary rules that someone shoved on top of it, of my program to restrict me, at least if you're coming from a dynamic type background. It's like, but why can't I do this? Whereas once you kind of go into these even more powerful types, you start saying, oh, there are these ways in which I could have some guarantees about my program and I can write programs about my program just in this sub language of types and they're really tricky and they're really not the most fun thing to do in all honesty other than as puzzles and i think this is where idris makes it really fun is they have this kind of interactive way of doing it that actually does make them feel like puzzles but here the important bit is that like our programs we're writing today even if we're not using these proof assistants they correspond to some sort of logical statement. Now, that statement might be inconsistent because our program has an infinite loop that we didn't realize was in there. It might be that, oh, well, in order to really analyze it, we would have to have some like really complicated higher-order temporal logic or something like this. But we actually start seeing these things being used in real stuff, like Rust type system is applying logic to programs in a way that hadn't been done before with an affine type system. This is how the borrow checker works. And I don't know. I know that like, to me, this stuff, as I kept, as I keep reading this paper, yes, like I'm looking at kind of what we have left in here. And there is a lot of kind of like in the weeds. So like intuitionistic logic, which Ivan, I'm sure has no opinions on. I have, I don't even know. I like the, 
The first paragraph starts off in Gilbert and Sullivan's The Gondoliers. And it's like, oh, I like Gilbert and Sullivan. And then the whole rest of this section, I'm like, I have no idea what this means uh-huh. or why I care about it. I don't know. It has to do with like... So I'll tell you, the answer is intuitionists were just wrong and you shouldn't listen to anything they have to say. Great. Cool. That section's done. Uh, yeah. They don't believe in the law of excluded middle. <laughs> Which you actually might like. The law of excluded middle or not believing in the law of excluded middle? Not believing in the law of excluded middle. Oh, okay. That would be more, I feel like that's more your jam. You don't want to hold on to anything. So the law of excluded middle is something is either true or false, basically, right? Is kind of the idea. There is no third option. So if I say, like, I, <laughs> Ivan is wearing a green shirt, that can either be true or not true. Uh-huh. And nothing else. Yep. It's got to be one of those two. Yes. So either A or not A. Yeah. But if you made a statement that's like, well, Ivan's a big jerk. Well, actually, no, that can be true or it can be not true. It depends. Now, of course, you would quibble and say, well, yes, but your statement wasn't very good because, you know, it left a whole bunch of ambiguity and yada, yada, yada. And I would say this is where this turns from being fun into being just like books level boring. But that's not what they're talking about. It's not about ambiguity. They want to say that that's just not true, that a statement is not either true or not true. That it's only true if you've proven whether it's true, and it's only false if you've proven that it's false. Mm. So you can't actually do that thing until after you've proved one side or the other? Yes. Yeah. So you can't use A or not A as part of your proof? Yes. Prior to proving A or proving not A. So the, the programming example, I think, actually makes this a little clearer. Imagine we have an enum or an algebraic data type, whatever you want, that it has one option A and one option B. Mm-hmm. We'll actually, we'll just call them A and not A. That's what they're called, A and not A. And I have a function that, like, I want to have one of those two, right? I need to have either A or not A. That's my disjunction here. If I say, hey, I have a variable of type... Uh, I should have given that uh, that enum a name. My enum. I have a variable of type my enum. What's the value? Well, the value either has to be a, or it has to be not a. Otherwise, I just don't have a value. There is. I can't run this program. I don't have any value for this variable. I have to either have one option or the other, and that's what they want to say the world's like. You have to have it. You have to hold it in your hand. You have to have a proof of it. And if you don't have a proof, you can't know it. So they reject all sorts of things that normal mathematicians accept, and they're just wrong. It might be useful. It might be fun. It might make you feel uh, like a rebel to reject a long-honored principle, but nah, it's just wrong. Oh, you'd like this, Ivan. I'm going to dunk all over it. (laughs) Well, you would, because... Because you like getting dunked on. You want to be a contrarian. Yeah. So, for example, they don't buy that there are certain kinds of irrational numbers. Hmm. So pi does not have an infinite number of digits. In fact, nothing has an infinite number of digits because show me that number. If you can't show me that number, if you can't hold it in your hand, for lack of a better term, right? If you can't compute it, you can only compute approximations of it. Yeah. It, it does not have an infinite number of numbers. Yeah. This feels tenuous because it's like the, the, the decimal expansion of a number is different from an actual number. Like pi, the actual number pi is not the same as the decimal expansion of pi. Those are like different things. And pi is very tangible. Like you can very easily, like if you can draw a circle, you can, you can get some pi. 
But like I baked a pie just yesterday, in fact. No, I didn't actually. <laughs> oh, you'd like this. It's an anecdote that goes nowhere and, and actually was not was not true. Ivan, check this out. Check this out. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in some some nonsense. <laughs> so so you know, that thing you do. So for how the paper how the paper structure goes, I think actually lends itself more towards the talk of the paper than like our discussion on it. So I wanna kinda synopsize some of this and get to what I think is the most interesting bit about this paper. And it's what made it stick with me. Okay. So there is this great little diagram here of Genson's uh, system of how you do natural deduction, where it shows a bunch of logical proofs. And the reason we get this little intuitionist thing is because that's the system he's going to be showing and he's trying to be thorough and like, this is intuitionistic logic. And so you get this, direct natural deduction. And so it's a bunch of these this blue text here, and it's things like A, B, and then a line, and then A and B. Or A and B, and then a line, and then A, right? And it's these little <laughs> formula that are going on here. <laughs> Ivan's laughing we're, at me. We're having such podcast. <laughs> uh-huh. And then we scroll down and we get the lambda calculus, and now there are two colors. They're the red and the blue. And it turns out that Lambda calculus is just this natural deduction, but with some extra little things thrown on it. There's some little type subscriptions to it. This is one where I think the talk unambiguously does a better job, or not unambiguously, inarguably, in, indisputably does a better job than the paper. That the talk's presentation of this, where it does like, first let's look at the logic, then let's look at the lambda calculus, now let's look at the logic and the lambda calculus at the same time, mm-hmm. is like a much clearer, more coherent, digestible, approachable also provably better way than what this paper does. (laughs) We get all of this, and it's really nice when you read, I think it's really nice when you read the paper, and it is better in the talk. He presents it in a way that's a little bit more directly intuitive. But you can actually now kind of walk through this. For me, it was like, oh, I both like understood the lambda calculus a little bit, but I also know logic, and I had never understood these diagrams. These are the diagrams that you see in all these fancy type theory papers. That are so confusing to me. Like, I struggle so much to, to interpret them as code. But here, since it's such a simple system and not these big complicated ones, it is a lot easier to be like, oh, okay, I, I kind of see it. Now, I'll actually uh, say that the thing that helped me the most in understanding proofs is, uh, I think it's incredible.pm. Mm, is that the the game? Yeah, so this is a uh, visual programming language. Well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I would, because it's a visual proof system, which proofs our programs. No, uh, <laughs> uh, uh. That actually gets to my substantial critique later on. Thank you for reminding me that I need to do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, the incredible proof machine. Yeah, the incredible proof machine. So if you want to go do some of these proofs, I had a bunch of them solved, but it was on an old computer. I need to go back through these. Uh, you kind of get this like node wire style interface that you can do proofs in. Um, and you get like immediate feedback if your proof is wrong or has some type error or whatever, some some issue. It's not, I'm not going to pretend it's like the best interface ever. Yeah. But it's definitely way better to me to solve these proofs here than try to do it by pap- on pen and paper and not find out any, did I do it right? And then like you have to go check. It's, it's fun. I enjoyed it. Um, I actually, I have to run upstairs for a sec. I will be right back.
There, I forced a break. <laughs> I knew you were just going to pretend. Uh, well, we're it's we're at an hour and forty minutes. If we're gonna do this, yeah, we we're wrapping to, up. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I cool. think this is perfect timing. We had like ten, fifteen minutes of non podcast banter nonsense. So yeah, I think we're shooting good time. Yeah, because that 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 felt like a good spot where we had like talked about the middle section, and now we can talk about the like the conclusion and that sort of stuff. And then our thoughts, which is really what I want. Like all yeah, of this, exactly. To be, right? It's just yeah. like us thinking about the idea here um um Uh, yeah how do we set this up how do we set this up we didn't do a clean enough job of establishing the bit to actually set up why so wait at the top of the episode, <laughs> I awkwardly said hello. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then when we came back after you didn't let Lemon out, <laughs> we... I said hello. You awkwardly said hello. Now we need another... We need to begin another section, but we don't have anybody to awkwardly say hello. Uh-huh. So I think we just have a moment of silence. That translates very well into podcast listeners who have the skip silence. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, uh, um, a moment in silence in lieu of having somebody here to say hello for the for the third time this segment intentionally left silent <laughs> it has an unsound type <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, have you refreshed the Patreon recently? Uh, no, no. Okay. Did you go sign up a bunch of? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just trying to skew the numbers a little bit, you know. You know, put my hand on the scales. I it still shows the same amount for me. Yeah, no, you have to look at the tiers. Anyways, oh, unsound type system, <laughs> like tears in the rain. <laughs> Unsound type system. Are, are the future uh, of programming. I, um, uh, one more, just before we get back into it, one more thing to segue off of. Um, Jimmy, would you mind in our Slack reading the following meme? Why am I reading bad <laughs> logic math memes? Stop doing logic. Arguments were not supposed to be formalized. So many rules, yet no world use found for going beyond modus ponens. Wanted to prove things anyway for a laugh? We had a tool for that. It was called induction. Hello there. How are possibly A in plus one... Uh, divided by not a of n plus one over over it's 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 uh it's uh like the little uh horizontal line whatever that is yeah, called. yeah that's just division yeah no what in logic that's division well they didn't write it like that's just a division sign but it, over is division but this that no i thought it was like uh impl- like a a space b and then a horizontal line a and b yeah okay yes but that's not what this is yeah but this is just collapsed onto one line it's the version of that where they're like one over the other but they just like flattened it out okay so that would be given (laughs) given okay yeah but like but like uh, it it doesn't doing anyway and i don't know what the for all and then uh, we got phi for all phi necessarily via what's that one i always forget 
I don't know. <laughs> mm. But the box and arrow, the box and, and uh, diamonds here are relevant. Um, anyways, oh, okay. statement dreams up by the utterly deranged. Look at what logicians have demanded your respect for all this time, for all the arguments and language they've built. This is real logic done by real logicians. And then it's a bunch of logic trees or something. And then it's, you have to be logical. They have played us all for absolute fools, but the A's and the E's are replaced with existential and universal quantifiers, right? Which I think is just rad. <laughs> A joke that doesn't work and no one I'm can not get. even going to describe what you're doing. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the, the, the validation of describing. <sighs> so, so. So, uh, possibly and necessity are awesome though. I'll just say this. So we get to the last section, which kind of had hints throughout here where we kind of skipped them, which is what should we think about the status of all of this? I think that's the way I'm going to put it. And we get this wonderful plaque from the pioneer spaceship, which was one of the things that definitely when you open up this paper and you just scroll through it, as you do with every paper to figure out how complicated is this paper going to be and do I really need to read it? Because, you know, you just look for that wall of, like, types and stuff like that and all those papers, you're like, how? And then you see this at the bottom, and it's, you know, two naked people and some some weird lines and some circles and a bow and arrow, and and it's very confusing. But, like, why is this here? The question ultimately is, what would happen if we tried to communicate with aliens by transmitting a computer program? Would they understand what we wrote? What do you think, Ivan? Would, would aliens understand? It uh, depends how alien they are. And that's what Wadler contends is like, depending on how wild you want your conception of alien to be, it's less and less likely that they would recognize, for instance, the line art illustration of some human bodies or the diagram showing the sun and all the planets in our solar system. And maybe they would be able to figure out the way that we've indicated, you know, a bunch of pulsars around the black hole at the center of the Milky Way or whatever that is. But those aliens would still probably have logic They'd probably still have modus ponens and they'd probably still have some things that we've discovered they would have discovered too because they are inherent to the way that stuff works. <laughs> to put it very elegantly, there are some things that are inherent to the way stuff works. Let's let Wadler uh, answer, right? So he says that if it was like C, probably not. But if it was like Lambda Calculus, yes. If we tried to transmit computer programs, then they might not understand C because C is all wonky and C-like. But lambda calculus is something more fundamental. And so he says this. We might be tempted to conclude that lambda calculus is universal. But first, let's ponder the suitability of the word universal. These days, the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum physics is widely accepted. Which I don't think is true. But, okay. Uh, Scientists imagine that in different universes, one might encounter different fundamental constants, such as the strength of gravity or the Planck constant. But easy as it may be to imagine a universe where gravity differs, it is difficult to conceive of a universe where fundamental rules of logic fail to apply. Natural deduction, and hence lambda calculus, should not only be known by aliens throughout our universe, 
but also throughout others. So we may conclude, it would be a mistake to characterize Lambda Calculus as a universal language, because calling it universal would be too limiting. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, which, like, okay, cool. I mean, fun. <laughs> I like that. It's, it's, it's cute. It's nice writing. I appreciate that. And then, you know, this is the same kind of charm that Wadler exudes on stage in the Strange Loop talk. It just charm in a PDF <laughs> paper. And I won't spoil how he ends the Strange Loop talk, but I, it's, it's also fun. Mm-hmm. And the Q&A. The Q&A at the end of the Strange Loop talk slaps. It bumps. It is so good. It is not part of this paper. This paper has some appendices that are... Yeah, we did not read. Yeah, Wadler emails Howard, and they have some talk back and forth. But the Q&A at the end of the Strange Loop talk is, is super-duper good. And so I would say, if you skip the talk, watch the, watch the Q&A. So this isn't just charm, though. This is, I think, the, the big substantial point of the paper. He says that, you know, earlier, that, like, that these things aren't invented, they're discovered. And you can tell. That they're universal, that when we are programming... We are not just doing something that's a human invention, some little fun, weird activity that we've made up to preoccupy nerds so they don't, you know, ruin other things. It is something incredibly fundamental and something, like, at the basis of reality. That is what we're playing with. That is what we're working with. That is what we do when we're programming is something so fundamental, not even in other universes could it not be the case i i for me that is why this paper stuck with me and i know for you ivan you are unimpressed don't don't (laughs) tell me how i'm going to Uh, you're unimpressed by that idea i am i am i am not Uh, but it is it is amazing like we get to work with this fundamental material and like the constraints that are placed on us are just those of reality I, I love this. And I love that like this paper goes into it has a, a bunch of citations about all the different ways in which these logics apply to our system. So there's S5 modal logic, which applies to the spatially distributed computation, and S4, which is staged computation, which has to do with like compilers. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways in which all of these things, all of these fundamental properties bring themselves into our programs. And we, all we have to do to find new and novel programming things is to look at this necessary stuff, this fundamental logic of how reality even is. And we can discover anything we could imagine in programming. I find that vision of programming fascinating. And and Wadler kind of emphasizes this in the talk more than in the paper, which I did like. He thinks that ultimately we should focus on working in programming languages that have a lot more of this discovered stuff rather than this invented things. Now, I don't know if I agree with him, but I think it's a I think this is such an interesting take on what programming is supposed to be. It's not an argument here. That we don't have a grand vision of what the future of programming, the future of coding, the future of code will look like. We instead have a very quiet, factual, historical statement that's trying to get you to aesthetically appreciate something the way Wadler does. 
And I love that. I, I don't know that there is a similar paper out there for any of these other ways of looking at programming that just kind of slowly brings you, yes, academically, yes, a little dryly, but with some humor sprinkled in, but to see things the way the author does, to see the beauty that Wadler clearly really loves and cares about. And maybe the reason for that is that this kind of joy that Wadler is feeling about this kind of discovery that was made by Howard and Curry before him lends itself very well to being expressed in a paper. Whereas other similar kinds of joys that apply to other slices of our field or of other fields lend themselves well to other kinds of expression. And so I think this paper is a beautiful marriage of that, you know, core idea and the medium for expressing that idea. And I think, you know, the talk also does it well, but you've quite compellingly argued that the paper presents this idea in an even more intriguing way than the talk. And it can kind of pull on more things. So I, I teased a couple of times that I have a substantial critique and I mean substantial not as in like it's a big critique. I just mean like it, it's not a joke. It, like there's actually some substance to it. I mean this sincerely, not like like jokey jokey, which is that this correspondence, this like, hey, here's this like divine realization that we've made that these two things have this very intimate connection between them. There's like a a, a certain way of looking at this and seeing the beauty of it and basking in that and, and appreciating it and, and reflecting on it and then incorporating that into your work and going, you know what, I should look for other correspondences like this. And there's another way of looking at it, which is, hey, that, that correspondence there suggests a certain legitimacy that other ways of approaching one's work do not have. And Wadler steps into this a little bit mm -hmm. with the like, oh, some things are discovered and some things are invented. And there's a little bit of sort of sneering derision directed towards the things that are invented as opposed to the things that are discovered. And that's, that is like the dark path that this paper and this realization about this divine beauty can put you onto is to say, well, if there are these grand correspondences out there, the proper thing to do is to devote oneself to the discovery of those correspondences and to use those as the basis for our programming. And that programming that builds upon these ideas where there's a clear connection between logic and computer science, those programming systems are the good ones and the ones that don't do that are the bad ones. And that, I think, is true to some extent. I don't just automatically reject that. Like I see the truth of it. I see the value of it. But I think that it is a kind of closed-mindedness that pervades the academic strain, the sort of category theoretic, like Haskell supremacist uh, <laughs> type of programmer of whom there are a lot on Twitter. <laughs> and I would instead use this as an opportunity to say, these kind of correspondences also exist between other aspects of 
computer science and things that aren't computer science. And they don't have the rigorous definition that you get from something like a correspondence between formal systems of logic and computer science. But they don't need that because they're not trying to draw a correspondence in a rigorous, formal, provable domain. They're trying to do something else. And that programming as we all interact with it is more than just the construction of programs that are meant to be an echo of a, of a proof with, you know, made out of propositions and reduced down to some simplified version. They are things that we build to make games or to run a business or to tell stories or to do any of the things that we do with programming. The parts of programming that can benefit from the discovery of these correspondences, like Rust's borrow checker or like Oh, what's the other one? There's one that's like a CSP, I think. There's like a logic that corresponds with CSP. There's the logic that corresponds with Idris's type system. There's like all these correspondences between things in logic and, and things in interesting programming languages, proof assistance, that sort of thing. But there's also the side of programming that faces the person. Like this is, we've talked about this a bunch of times, right? There's mm -hmm. the side of programming that faces the computer and the side of programming that faces the person. There's also the side of programming that faces the universe. And that's what this paper is talking about is here's the side of programming that faces the universe and how some parts of programming correspond to grand cosmic inter-universal things in a very profound way. But there are other sides of programming and I contend that we ought not to neglect them just because this one has such a satisfying framing. Yeah, I, I do think that you're right. I think that this has led a lot of people to think types are the only way. That there is no other answer besides getting more and more into these more and more advanced types. And if only everything were dependently typed, if only we were rigorous about all of the things that we do in programming, could it be good? I think... I, I totally agree with you that that's a mistake we can make. And I think, I think there's two ways of getting out of it. And I'm not saying that they're, one's better than the other. I think you can take both approaches. But one way is what you're saying, which is like there's just these other aspects, which is just true. There are other aspects, right? I mean, I think Elm did a really good job of kind of saying like, yeah, we really like types. We really care about types. And in fact, you know, we have this perfectly sound language and, you know, we have a very good type system. And yet, that's not all there is to programming. We're really going to care about this human aspect of things. We're really going to make good error messages. We're really going to leverage those types in a way that helps people. Um, and so we're going to ignore some of the more advanced stuff like monads or whatever and, and not do that because we just don't find that good for people. But I think the other way of looking at it is to realize all of these things that maybe some type advocates aren't as big of a fan of, actually, they also have this correspondence. It's just a much more complicated one. And there's nothing wrong with complicated correspondence. There's nothing wrong with inconsistent systems. What's wrong with that? It's still something we can discover. It's still something we can mathematically explain. It's still something we can do all of that. And if some people like those and you like doing all your fancy type stuff, well, you can interpret it after the fact. There is a way to interpret these things without imposing it on others. Just because someone doesn't statically ch type check their program doesn't mean there couldn't be a type assigned to that program. 
And just because the type might not be, you know, expressible in Haskell doesn't mean it's not valid. Or that like validity is not the goal for all people in all cases, right? Like the construction of valid programs is like there, there's a certain segment of people out there who really lose their minds whenever you propose like writing something in a way that's really sloppy, right? Like if, if I write something in TypeScript or, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people are going to feel more comfortable with that than if I say, oh, I'm going to write that in CoffeeScript because they'll go, well, how do you know that the code that you're writing in CoffeeScript is actually going to run and you'll waste all this time? No, I, I having spent the past year in TypeScript, <laughs> I now 100% know that I spend more time fighting the type checker than I ever did fighting like null references and, and, typos and that kind of stuff in my very dynamic code. Like it's, it's like clear orders of magnitude difference. That's like fine because the reason I'm writing in TypeScript is I'm like, I have a different goal now. And the, when I was writing in CoffeeScript, I had a different goal and like no solution matters if you are not looking at it in light of like the context of the problem that you're trying to solve. So this sort of like, oh, you know, discovery is the be-all, end-all. It's the most important thing. We should be using programming tools that are full of things that are discovered through, you know, the grand cosmic thread of connections that we're pulling on. That is an unhelpful statement to make because it invalidates all these other cases where taking a different approach to coming up with a, a programming system would bear more fruit or would bear fruit for the specific problem. I see what you're saying there. And I think the irony is here is, you know, the the most ardent uh, typed advocates are not a big fan of TypeScript because it's an unsound type system. Yeah, sure. Which is fascinating. Like, it's it's now, like, becoming the most popular language. And it's one of the reasons that types are coming into style again, right? So many people using TypeScript. And yet, it did something that most people thought was, like maybe irresponsible might be a word I've seen thrown around for, you know, lack of types. I would imagine an unsound type system also might feel that way for some people. And yet, like, it, that was kind of TypeScript's thing. It's like, well, we have these purposes that, just like you're saying, right, where their goal was to let JavaScript developers convert over, and they thought they could get benefits even without having the soundness of the type system and allowing more code to be written in that way, which is interesting. Um, I guess I'm of two minds on all of this because I really enjoy writing in typed languages, but I also really enjoy writing non-typed languages. And I think it's sad when the discourse becomes one versus the other. Yeah. I, I think that you're right about these different purposes, but I also feel like there's just fun to be had in both worlds. And I think that what would also be a shame well, it would be a shame if we're just like, oh, only if there's this like very direct, obvious, this is the discovered thing, instead of like the complicated, oh, yeah, well, this must have some interpretation, but we don't know what it is. Uh, like, if it has to be this direct, obvious, the other one would be ignoring all of this because you just want to have fun with programming and not realizing like, oh, actually, if I paid attention to some of this logic stuff and some of this discovered things, I could make my system more enjoyable for me. I could improve some bit of it that like, oh, if I just tweak this design thing here, I would get these properties that I want. So I think about you know being able to make concurrent 
concurrency better, distributed programs better, right? Like there's ways in which, oh, if I actually pay attention to the logical properties these systems have, I might be able to let users express all of this in a in a better way for them. But the only way I'm going to know that I really can do that and it doesn't have a bunch of edge cases and weird, you know, cruft that no one ever wants to deal with is if I like dive in and figure out these kind of technical constraints of of the logic and how things are working. I think it's sad, right? That's why I don't like this like typed versus dynamic type, like static type versus dynamic type being the discourse. Because I think there's stuff we can learn from both. Or like I hate seeing somebody make a toy programming language just for fun and then people coming and dunking on it because there's some like, you know, you didn't express it in terms of these, you know, universal foundational concepts. So you have this like disharmony at the core of the thing you've made. And it's like, that's not what I was trying to do. Like, you know. Yeah. There's a certain like, the people who believe in finding universal harmony among concepts tend to apply a universal lens to the projects that they look at. How's that for a, for a big, big <laughs> statement? A uh, universal you know. statement? Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. One of the things I'm reminded of here is just, uh, an ad- this is about how the attitude you take towards not only your work, but the work of others, right? And I think it's very important to make a distinction between those two. So when I was working on a JIT compiler for Ruby, I talked to a bunch of people who are, one, Rubyists, but then also a bunch of people who are compiler engineers who are, and and these are actually an odd combination of the two sometimes, right? Because what are Ruby's values? It's about very high level code. It's about letting people express what they want. And it's not about efficiency. <laughs> That's kind of like, yes, of course, they want to get there. But that was not one of the starting goals. It's just like writing the code the way you want to express it. And then you get compiler engineers who are all about efficiency, right? These are people who want to dive into all those low-level details, who want to get everything as efficient as possible. And one example that was brought up that uh, was an optimization for Ruby code that exists out there. This is You can write this code, and it's very actually very efficient in Ruby, and probably not in almost any other language, I would bet. Um, so there was trying to... People were trying to bound a number to a range. So you have like a min, like one, and a max, like 10. And you pass in your number, and you should either get the minimum as one, the maximum is 10, or your number if it's in the middle. Now, all of you right now who are programmers can think of how you might write that code. Maybe there's a built-in function for it, but if you have to write it yourself, like you have, you can do an if statement. Sigmoid curve with gradient descent. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. You train up a neural network to make sure it gets that right, you know, et cetera. Uh, Well, the way that Rubius had decided to write it, and this was like all sorts of libraries were doing this, is you have an array, you put one in there, you put 10 in there, and you put your number in there, and you sort the array, and then you pick the middle number. And that gives you the answer. And anyone who's like a low-level, thinking about performance, thinking about allocations right now is like cringing, right? Like there, I can think of so many people I know who'd be like, wait, why are you doing, you're allocating an array just to do a comparison between these numbers? But instead of having that attitude towards these Ruby developers, the Ruby implementations went and made it efficient. So you don't allocate an array when you write that code. There is no allocation that happens. The code does exactly 
what the lowest level version of that code would do. And I think we can have the same attitude if we really care about types, if we really think they're important. We don't have to say, oh, and anyone who doesn't is dumb and has a bad perspective or whatever. We can say, how can I take those my, what I know about types and make the rest of what people are doing without types better? Right? I think this discovered attitude of looking at this logical, fundamental thing, we can say, I know a bunch of these logical things. How can I help people apply them to their programming if that might not be what they pay attention to? Just like I know a bunch of low-level details. How can I help other people make their programs more efficient? Right? I, I think that this is something that we as a programming community just struggle with. There's people on either side of this divide who can help people on the opposite side bridge the divide. Yeah. Like the people who are fans of the very theoretically pure stuff can offer like, ah, here are all of these fundamental ingredients that have correspondences with things in logic or things in math or category theory. And you here's like, you know, this, this set of Lego pieces, these building blocks that you can put together. And they offer those things. But I, as somebody on the other side of the divide from those people, the perceived divide, feel like those things are inscrutable. Like I have a tremendous difficulty understanding, like if I want to put monads in Hest, like how would I even do that? What would that even mean, right? And I would have to go become a category theoretician in order to understand that. And I, on the other side of this, you know, divide from those people, have a bunch of like thoughts about interfaces to programs and how people work and how you can make things learnable and approachable and understandable. And I can help the people who are, you know, over in theoretically pure land with their posters at Splash or whatever, try and make their work more comprehensible to people who aren't category theoreticians. And there's some cross-pollination there that I think is needed. And so the thing that I would champion is, as much as you can, Ivan of the past two hours, don't poo-poo on the things <laughs> that are foreign to you. Try to embrace it and find a way to take what you have to offer and help those people so that they can take what they have to offer and help you. Yeah, and I, I think that, I think this still, even though neither Ivan or I are, you know, like, I've I've dug into a bunch of types theory stuff, but I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but you're a philosopher. I'm not even a philosopher. By correspondence, you know all of type theory. <laughs> I am, uh, just like I am not a real programmer, I'm not a real philosopher. <laughs> I have no credentials in anything, but... I, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at all of this stuff. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've written my, uh, my share of proofs in Idris, which I've probably written more proofs in Idris than proofs not, like, on pen and paper. Because the last time I ever wrote a proof was ninth grade geometry. But I wrote a decent number of proofs in Idris. Um, so, yeah. Because we never had proofs after that, which I thought was sad. I loved proofs. Um, or the pro incredible proof machine. I've probably written yeah, a number there, too. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. But yeah, uh, so I, I I really do enjoy this stuff. And I do think this is a really rich research project, right? I think there's so much we can get out of it. At the same time, this is the only paper, I think, in this kind of tradition that we'll, we could ever cover. Yeah. I looked at the Howard paper, the original one, and, and for uh, the one, you know, presented in 1980, and for a logic paper, it's pretty darn readable. 
but it would not make for a good podcast. Um, there are papers on types that we could do, but they're all kind of looking at kind of the the weirdness of types or the places in which they don't apply or the history or, but like, I just, there isn't a lot of this work that's been translated in such a way that it's not just deep in the technical weeds. And so it's one of the things that I I think the Patreon, like seeing how many people signed up on type systems, I just, I know that there's, I mean, there's podcasts out there talking about types and all of that, but with our format, looking at papers, I don't know what that will look would look like. And it's a huge subfield of computer science that we could like spend a lot of time digging into and and you know playing in that space, but it's it's hard. Like the the inscrutability of a lot of that stuff to outsiders is a serious detriment to that subfield. Yeah, try to take some of these. I've I've done it. I've tried to take code that, like, write code based on reading a paper of these type systems, and it's not easy. I mean, there's like really cool ones. Like, if you ever want to do like Mini Canren, a logic programming language, and do like the Henley Milner type system in Mini Canren, it's like, oh, that's so elegant and simple. And yet, I still don't understand it. <laughs> like, I can't do it in anything other than Mini Canron. And I've tried to, I had this idea forever ago of like a type system I really wanted to see, which is like a structural type system and blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel like I have the chops to do it. But trying to convert these things from the papers to actual working code was so hard. And I know that that's partially education. I know that, you know, people who've been in this forever, who've done a bunch of type theory things, just don't find it that difficult. But I really liked, like, Guy Steele gave a talk at a closure conference talking about all this notation, and he showed, like, how inconsistent it is, how difficult it actually is to know what any notation in a paper means because there isn't even a standard for it. People use it very differently. And... I don't know. I think if you're if you really feel that the future of coding is about type systems, like if you're really that kind of person, I mean I think I think there's a lot there, but I think it's got to maybe the answer just is, you know, build a nice language like TypeScript that lets people write a bunch of things. But I think there's also some of this thought component, there's some of this advocacy, there's some of this like yeah. Translating the theory, not just the practice, to other people. That would be really interesting because I don't know if you've ever looked at the implementation of TypeScript's type system, but it's one file. It is 40,000, maybe probably more at this point, 40,000 lines. And wow, is it wild. Yeah. And if I'm over here like, hey, I want to work on Hest and from experience, I can say that using a type system as part of the interface to your visual programming tool is actually often a really good idea. Like typing visual programming languages feels really good because it lets you guide the interactions in a really satisfying way um, and and give a little bit of that structured editor, projectional editor kind of feel to what is otherwise like a free canvas sort of environment. Like that's a really, there's a lot of nice synergy between those things. But if I wanted to go and do that and like pull a really robust type system together and like design a visual interface around that, 
I would be super duper lost. And the thing that I think I'm missing is like what got me into this position of like thinking about visual programming the way that I do is the like Brett Victor style essays that just did a beautiful job taking these very important ideas from the history of computer science and and software design and, and just graphic design and all of those different threads and weaving them together into a really compelling presentation that isn't just about like, oh, here's an idea that I'm trying to share with you, but like, here's a meta idea or a meta process. Like, here's how to approach your thinking. Here's how to approach your learning. Here's how to like scavenge these ideas that are being lost to time and incorporate them into your work. And I don't know how to do that with all this type stuff. So if there's like somebody out there who's like the the Brett Victor for Lambda calculus or whatever, or the Brett Victor for category theory or whatever it is, where it's like, yeah, read these essays that are written for a somewhat lay audience because like brett's stuff is written for a pretty lay audience like it's you do not need to be deep in the sauce to understand what brett is talking about if somebody's doing that for category theory like here is the 15 minutes at a time way to completely change your worldview by learning category theory like i haven't seen it i'm sure some of it's out there but it's like is it that good and if there was something out there that good in that area i think that would be a like a huge benefit to our field to our like corner to the future of coding as we so call it. Yeah, I will say this is definitely not reaching the level that you're talking about here, but I will plug uh it's David Christensen has this talk at Compose Conference 4 years ago. It's bidirectional type checking. And it's not flashy, it's not, you know, for a layman audience at all. But what he does in this talk that I really like and it helped me go implement my own bidirectional type checker is he shows the notation that we've been looking at in this essay, and then he translates it to code and talks about how he's doing the translation. It's very, very nice to see that notation and then the actual code. And still, when I like, I, I've tried to write a bi-directional type checker before, like I looked at some paper that was like, and this type system, I just had to sit and watch that video. <laughs> You're like, all right, how, how did he translate that again? Like, and it's not obvious and it's, it, but it, it, the bi-directional type checker, I was able to go implement it. And it's actually like, the code is really simple. There's two sides of this bi-directional type checker. What a surprise that it would be called that. Uh, there's like the infer and there's the check and that's it, right? You can infer something and then the infer inference will call into check and check will call into infer. And so it's kind of this like little recursive process, but you know, that's really nice. And I think I haven't seen anyone, while this is good, like it's a very good talk, it's definitely still more academic. It's still more, you know, it, it's still more difficult. I'd love to see that material be more accessible. It's something I have thought about writing, but I'm not very good at those style of essays. Somebody who is, I would love to see that. Right. It's it's sort of in an awkward in-between space where like you can't cover it with like a Julia Evans or Kate Compton style zine and you can't get it done in a single talk. And there's a lot of papers, but paper probably isn't the medium. I really think it's like like the, the Brett Victor style explorable would be a really great fit for this. And I've seen like I've I've read some books that are like like O'Reilly, I think maybe put some out or I don't know. I've read I've read some books that are like 
let's actually code up example programs that are at every level in the sort of the, the hierarchy of computation, like we were talking about earlier, like push down automata and regexes and finite element automata and all those. There's some like nice, like let's start from the simplest possible thing, like basically like modeling a flip-flop or whatever and like work our way up. That's very satisfying, but I, I don't know of anybody doing that for category theory and for like other systems of, of logic or whatever it is that you want to try and make the foundations out of your programming model in terms of. Yeah, this is not types, but I'll throw out another reference that I really liked. Uh, List out of Lambda by Steve Losh. It's a great blog post that basically starts with like high level code and turns it all into lambdas, but kind of in a weird way. So at the end, you get your high level code. But the whole implementation all the way down is lambdas, and it's it's in JavaScript, and it's very well organized. Very, I actually used it as an outline for a talk that I gave at a local conference where I did exactly that. Like, we start with like some lists and things. Yeah, list out of lambda. So you start with a list, and then you define it all in terms of lambda, and then you build up numbers out of lists, and it's it's really nice. So it doesn't get in the types side of things. But it's definitely something I'd I'd recommend people checking out if you are looking for a to understand kind of like what exactly is lambda calculus and how could I define everything effectively computable using lambdas. Um, so really enjoyed that one. I wish I gave that talk at a that was recorded because I did a lot of I did the whole thing live coding, like literally every bit of it was live code, and that was so nerve wracking. But I had practiced it so many times. And other than me forgetting a macro that I had built into Sublime Text, it went off without a hitch, which was so exciting. I had like an I even wrote like a custom program to it was it was it was fun. I put so much effort in for a talk. It was like <laughs> so much effort in for a talk that only like twenty people saw. It was great. And then they've all forgotten about it. Uh, well, I have an ending okay. if you're ready. Yeah. I think we could say uh, universality considered harmful because it would be too limiting. Nice.